Come on. Welcome to Money Savage, a savage approach to personal finance. This is George Grumbacher, and the time is right. Welcome today's guest, strong and powerful Vicki Benjamin. Vicki, are you ready to do this? I absolutely am. Let's uh, work on changing the world, George. <laughs> I love it. Let's let, let's do this. Vicki is a CPA. She's an MBA. She is the CEO of Carner Blue Capital, an organization focused on socially responsible investing. I'm excited to have you on. Vicki, tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do. Thank you very much, George. Um, well, I started out in my career, as you know, as a CPA. I was a partner at KPMG for 10 years. And although I loved what I was doing, um, I said, you know what? I saw a lot of trends coming out, especially related to climate change. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to, while I'm young enough, going to make a big jump from my career, go back into investment management, and Calvert Investments had an opening as their CFO. So back in 2015, I took a job as a CFO of the largest and oldest socially responsible investment firm. And so just to digress just a bit, just to give a little bit of background, what made Calvert so special was that they did bottom-up research on companies before ESG was uh, data data mining, really. And they would look at those companies that were the best in their industry, and then they'd also look at those that were laggards behind. And Calvert was really the first organization to start socially responsible investing and using investing in those companies that are good, but then most importantly, advocating, engaging, pushing the needle forward, on those companies that lag behind. So when I joined Calvert in 2015, um, met very closely with the founders, Wayne Silby, John Guffey, Rebecca Adamson, Jerry Mulner, and <clears throat> really understood the, the mission and the passion they had for changing the world to a better place and to be a more inclusive economy. So in 2000, fast forwarding uh, in 2015 all the way to the end of 2016, Calvert suffered some regulatory matters that forced a, its holding company, a company out of Nebraska, Ameritas Life Insurance, to sell those assets uh, to Eaton Vance. And Eaton Vance took Calvert's assets and uh, started Calvert Research and Management and that, and that flourishing over at Eaton Vance. Um, I stayed behind with my co-founder of Corner Blue Capital, and to liquidate Calvert and um, administer these SEC matters, but then also to do something that I thought was very underrepresented or not represented at all, was socially responsible investing that is targeted towards biodiversity, conservation, and animal issues. So effective 1-1, 2017, Myself and my partner, Andrew Niebler, former general counsel at Calvert, set out on a mission to use the capital market to influence the behavior of corporations surrounding biodiversity, animals, and the protection and sanctity of animal life by the, by corp, the behavior of corporations. So starting in 1-1, 2017, Andrew and I started Carnival Capital. Nice. Um, that. So, 
Well, one thing I'd like to talk about, and I, I'm, I'm not sure that I, I spend a lot of time thinking about things because nobody's really done the animal approach to investing. So as we said, socially responsible investing has generally been about three real tenants, right? You restrictively screen for industries that are harmful to society. And socially responsible investing has been around since the 1700s. It started with John Wellesley of the Methodist, who said, I'm not going to use parishioners' donations to further causes that I think are detrimental to, to the activity and efficacy of humans, such as gambling, tobacco, firearms. So socially responsible investing started out with just restrictive screens. You know, you don't invest in those companies. As global conglomeration grows, though, it's hard to figure out, you know, what is, you know, a company can sell cigarettes in a grocery store, but that doesn't mean that they're a producer of cigarettes. That got a little, that gets a little bit niche and a little bit more difficult, but we, you know, that's where socially responsible industry started out was restrictive screening. In the 1990s and the early 2000s, ESG integration came in, and that was basically companies, data providers were culling data from publicly available reports around certain key performance indicators. So we've all heard about GHG, global um, greenhouse gas emissions, and diversity initiatives. We've heard of social governance and environmental parameters really standard across industries, but aren't actually... um, may or may not be material to that industry. And I'll give you a little bit of an example. So for instance, GHG emission uh, scope, when you look at, you know, directly attributable to the company and its consumer scope one, scope two, that's material to a fossil fuel company. I would argue that it's less material to a bank, for instance. So you, you need to be able to apply these ESG factors to industries where those their material, and then to those companies where that their material. So when we were looking at starting Carter Blue Capital, I said, okay, for strict screening, we got, you know, we can we can figure out those companies. Those companies, and for Carter Blue, we restrictively screen out um, alcohol, gambling, of course, tobacco, firearms, and then we take it a little step further, another step further. We have no exposure to anybody who produces products surrounding fur. We all know about, you know, new fur, fur is generally produced with quite a bit of cruelty. So we screened it, we restrictively screened out fur. And then I, uh, a good friend of mine who's the CEO of Trillium said to me, Vicki, and this point's gonna be proven further in the interview. He said, uh, Vicki, most, <laughs> I doubt you're gonna find a company that has great animal welfare, biodiversity policies, and that has horrible governance and social policies. And I said, I said, that's probably true. And that hypothesis hasn't fact borne out. But he said, you really need to do an overall ESG screen. So we um, integrated ESG. So no company, fully, meaning no company that we examine on a, a biodiversity metrics or animal welfare is are below their industry mean on environmental, social, and government factors. And we double count environment because of the biodiversity, conservation, and climate change issues. So starting with a population of companies that have exceeded their mean in overall ESG 
the Carnot Blue specific process it has evolved. And that's where we take those industries we consider material to the health of biodiversity and conservation. And we examine those companies that are above their industry means in ESG criteria, and we put them through individual industry frameworks, which is very different. It's a it's a it's an a extension of of, of what we learned, and it's fine tuned to focusing in on biodiversity, species diversification, and climate change indicators uh, in 14 specific industries that we've identified as high animal impact. So I'm going to pause there for a minute before we talk further about what's going on in the environment and what's going on in the world and how we see it and how our strategy has somewhat mitigated that. Uh, I don't know if you have any questions on what I've, I've said so far, George. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate everything you said. Is is it that people think that there's not money in this and that's that, that's why they haven't been doing it? The, the animal uh, and the conservation, the, that specific piece, or or just ESG in general? Because ESG assets are moving in at, at a pretty rapid clip, right? We're at about 11. Yeah. 2018, we're at $11.7 nice. And I, I would expect with a transfer of wealth. But I will, I will address exactly the question specific to the animal um, species question and, and I that was the first thing I did George when I set about to do this I, I had called a friend of mine at CSR hub and CSR hub is a data miner and they receive every single data feed of ESG data so there's about 770 sources probably more now and I called them up and I said why like why are there any animal products like why there's one in three people has a pet probably not more now and or give to animal welfare organizations or donate time. Why are there there's products around gender lens? There's products around fossil diversification, fossil fuel diversification. There's products around fair trade, but nothing representing you know even just conservation. And he he culled through the data and he came back with exactly what you would expect. Well, all the indicators that are coming from the data providers are tests beyond legal requirements. So the pharma industry, and I, I could spend three hours on how the pharma industry has come out by as as, as a, a pariah, but they actually are doing the only thing they can do to get drugs passed is they test on animals because of the protocols from the FDA and EPA are so archaic they require that even though it's, the efficacy of animal testing is virtually only 8%. So um, so I stepped back and I said, okay, now I got it. The data is not publicly available. Um, so you can't package products. If you, if you have most of your products from ESG are made from these Sustainalytic, MSCI, Bloomberg data, carbon disclosure project, project. And I said, okay, so this is gonna take us some time. Uh, so I, I, I hired people. I had uh, some ex-Calvert research people. Andrew and I embarked on doing bottom-up research, and that means hiring people to cull through sustainability reports, looking for animal exposure, um, calling companies. And I'd say the biggest component, what made the biggest difference, was we got involved with a lot of NGOs who would look at our models 
the Humane Society of Compassion and World Farming. Particularly helpful, especially on the areas of um, wildlife exposure. And a lot of people don't think about it, but we have a, a 50% of portfolios wildlife exposure. Uh, I worked with the Rainforest Alliance, and we, and I, I know I'm leaving a bunch of them out, but those were the primary helpers. And they looked at our models, and I would call it PETA, of course, and Andy Beaton Section Society. I can't leave those two out. And so then we started. We determined those indicators that we thought were material to those industries of impact where there's a material animal exposure. So stepping back a little bit, um, not every industry has one degree of separation from animals or their habitat. So, for instance, that's that's our test. So you've got textiles and apparel, uh, agriculture, Animals and science and animals in captivity are mostly animals and science in laboratories, household and personal products, chemicals, pharma, of course. And you have animals involved in used for food, and those are animals in agriculture. And then you have all the other industries where animals are affected by the operations of corporations, where their habitats are affected. And those are a, a lot of the, the players you would think, the extractive industries like especially metals and mining. We're going to come back to metals and mining. I'll come back to that quite a bit. Textiles and apparel, agriculture to the extent we're growing palm oil and cocoa and highly biodiverse areas. So we looked at all of these indicators in all of these industries and built industry-specific models. And what would show you somebody, a company that was a leader in these practices? And it took us a long time. It took us 18 months of going through all. We knew that we were going to have to have a very diverse portfolio because standards, climate change standards, uh, protection standards uh, are very much more advanced, I would say, in the EU, especially in animal agriculture, and they are in the U.S. So we knew that our portfolio would has to be a global portfolio and encompass uh, the, the Morningstar Developed Market Index. So we start our research at, at 7,000 companies. And so a very long answer to a, a, a short question, but the, the, the real, real answer is, is that nobody had thought of it this way. Companies aren't recording the data. So you can't package a product like mm. this. You really have to step back and say, what industry impacts animals and what I think is the material way? And then what are the key indicators? And a lot of them are climate change-based, especially when you're looking at uh, the wildlife impact. And what are the key indicators that we think are material in that industry that have not been used previously or that we, th we, we do use some that are, are previous indicators, but a lot of them are specific to carnivore capital. And all of this underlies the investment philosophy that investment risk related to companies that deal with animal and climate change biodiversity indicators um, and factors have not been completely factored into stock price valuations of those companies. And those factors cause significant risk either regulatory, environmental, or compliance, or most importantly, 
reputational to those companies. And so that this is a real value add, a potential value add for Alpha for um, returns when you are looking at something that has not previously been the market, the availability of the information is challenged. Nice. Well, I appreciate everything you just said. I certainly appreciate you identifying uh, a very, very important issue and then recognizing that, that the work has not been done or had not been done by that many groups, if any at all, and that you then picked up the ball and ran with it and did all this work. So so are, 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 are these investments that, that ordinary investors can can participate in? Oh, absolutely. So we, um, so as I said, it took us about 18 months to pull together benchmarks to measure uh, the companies against each other. And then we do a fundamental financial analysis. This is not a rules-based approach. It really is. We have a, a CFA, we have a Portfolio Management Investment Committee. And we started out in 2018 with our animal welfare universe. And we developed 10 SMA strategies, depending on what you, exposure you want. So you may want the whole universe. You may want your only global. We have 10, 10 strategies. You may only want exposure to wild animals or those in captivity. And then we like the product. We have a lot of, um, a lot of curious people, a lot of, cause this is a new concept to socialize, right? You could, it's easy to say, say best of fossil fuels. Well, not easy, but that's a concept people understand and get, and it's sure. boom, right? But investing for the welfare of the planet and climate change, that's, that requires socialization. Mm-hmm. And so we said, you know what, this is a product for a lot of people. A lot of animal advocates um, are not in investment management, and I needed a product that could get to 401k platforms. So very excitedly, very excitedly, in uh, September of 2019, we launched the Animal Impact Fund. And the name kind of says it all, um, the Animal Impact Fund. So we have a mutual fund that is available. And uh, we're on a, a couple of couple platforms. As you know um, yourself, with, with such a senior position in, in the industry, and it, it's the kind of the chicken versus the egg, growing this business and, and when you also have the issue of socializing a brand new concept. You're growing out, you're trying to grow assets, you've got performance. You need to grow assets, you need to sustain the firm. And so you've just got to, and you get a track record. And so uh, we have, you know, coming up on uh, almost two year track record on the SMAs. And uh, the fund is, is uh, just had its six month birthday. And so it's exciting time. It's, it's, it's a very exciting time and um, for us. And I'd love to talk a little bit, um, I think we might have time, about what's going on now and some of the thoughts we had at Corner Blue Capital. Yeah, yeah. Please. Okay. Um, so I spent a lot of time thinking about this because we looked at you know, we see climate change, a barometer of climate change is species diversification. So we're in the sixth largest extinction in the history of, of, of the Earth. And the, it is a barometer of the acceleration of climate change. So you step back and you look at what's going on now with the pandemic, and there's very similar, it looks like they're almost related 
climate change and this pandemic. And I, I've done quite a bit. I, I read all the time, and it's just Andrew and I always are we like to bounce ideas back and forth. And so what we we came up with is we think that industrialization and and population growth has contributed to a clearly climate change. And separately and discreet, discreetly, it has also exposed us to a greater risk of pandemic. And with the the activities that are prompting the um, increase of the temperature on the planet are also those activities, those identical activities that are increasing our risk of pandemic. So if you look at it and those things, and that the, the main criteria is the alternative land deforestation. So when you look at certain industries, all, uh, even with, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll name a couple, I, I said I'd come back to it. So you look at extractive industries, and we then put paper and forest in that, metals and mining, fossil fuels and energy. And then you look at ag- agriculture, which is also a very large driver of deforestation, palm oil, which is grown in Malaysia and Indonesia, where the largest, most um, dense biodiversity areas. And you look at industrial agriculture where animals are so close together that zoonotic diseases jump from, have a very very high probability of jumping from the animal to the workers that are working around those animals. And you look at that and you see all of the, the deforestation and animal agriculture contribute to GHG. And they also create a hotbed for the spreading of a zoonotic virus. When you look at our, the Carnival Capital strategy, and I really thought about this, many of our indicators are related to prevention of climate change acceleration before the pandemic came on. And then the fund has per- continued to perform very, very well, or, or outperform on its benchmark. No prediction of future results, but yeah, to, because it also using the climate change indicators, you can extrapolate them across the pandemic related indicators. So for instance, our um, paper and forest is company integrated on not a zero deforestation, but a positive forestation policy. We look at textiles and apparel and look at the sustainability and the, the certifications that they get. We look at the palm oil producers and we look for RSPO, which is responsible sourcing of palm oil. Those are some of our key indicators. Uh, when we look at agriculture, we look at palm oil, cocoa. We look at the confinement of farm animals. We look at the use of antibiotics. And a lot of people haven't made this link. If companies need to use antibiotics, those animals are in very highly confined areas, which usually will spread disease such as viruses because of close contact among with humans and animals. And it also will spread bacteria. And so you have animal agriculture is also a source, not only different different um, measures of greenhouse gas emissions, depending on, you know, high, definitely 17% of the public of methane gas comes from cows. So when you think about that and you look at it and you say, wow, we get such an overlap here. We were, we're going into the biodiverse areas in Malaysia and Indonesia 
growing palmoil tearing down the trees and you've probably seen the pictures of the um, poor orangutans you know on the limbs of trees fighting bulldozers bulldozers it gives me chills still and you say we're literally shaking these trees of pathogens and the pathogens rain down and when those animals are nervous there's even more pathogens so in the forest what happens is and what happened with Ebola was you know, you've got agriculture, you've got metals and mining building roads, you have the human-animal interface, the contact. And a lot of folks will take these animals and they'll either take them to a wet market or they'll kill them there. And those animals have diseases that we're not capable of. We haven't evolved. We've never seen that virus. So in the example, I'll give you an example of Ebola, uh, bushmeat. So metals and mining has an issue with bushmeat. And uh, that's one of our indicators is how do companies prevent that? What do they do to make sure that the native, you know, that the, 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 the people that work there are not being, are not needing to go to bushmeat. So Ebola started out with a, a chimpanzee in the forest um, that was dead already. And the villagers are hungry. And um, they took the dead chimpanzee and ate it and virtually almost the whole village died and then Ebola was born and and was carried out to the rest of the population and that was to Africa. So whenever we come in contact with wildlife that we are not known to and we aren't associated with, like we run the risk and we there's the C D C has just recently come out and said probably close to seventy percent of all infectious diseases are going to be zoonotic, jumping from species to species. And the more we increase our interaction with other species, the more likely we are to have pandemic risk, increase our pandemic risk. So at Carnaby Capital, we've been so focused on deforestation and the treatment of animal so that we distance the human from the animal it has resulted in a very effective campaign and strategy against pandemic risk. Never a more important time to be having this conversation than 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 now. So I'm so grateful for the commitment that you've made and and, and the work that you're doing. And I know that there's so much more work to be done. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Please tell us where where we can learn more about you and how we can get involved. Gosh, um, okay, so I'm going to, I guess I've been a little long-winded, but that's, a, I, I, I get so, ex- you know, I, you can tell probably how excited <laughs> I am. So it's all good. I, I, it's all good. Uh, so first of all, uh, com is our website, and um, it talks more a little bit about our strategy. The animalimpactfund.com has its own, Animal Impact Fund has its own um its own website and then we have sister organizations see i don't just stop <laughs> i'm a busy girl right now uh, we <laughs> launched a foundation we launched a foundation uh the carnival center for humane economy center for humane economy.org that deals with advocating for change in corporations uh, that are not public so for instance most greyhound racing and the horse racing is is a private activity and so we advocate with private companies to change that behavior and then and I think very, uh, it, we have Animal Wellness Action, which is a PAC, Political Action Committee, 
that have comprise mostly of donors that are up on Capitol Hill, and we've got to address all the stakeholders, uh, legislating for changes in laws. So specifically, we're working really hard with um, the FDA and the, and the EPA right now. So you can check us out. Um, all, all of those websites are mentioned on the carnablutcapital.com website, and uh, I look forward to folks taking a look at us and um, hopefully some some helping animals and helping me help the world. I love it. Well, Savage Nation, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Vicki your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas and cares about animals and the planet and, and people too. Go to carnerbluecapital.com. That's K-A-R-N-E-R-B-L-U-E capital.com. I will list that as well as the other um, sites that Vicki mentioned in the, in, in the notes of the show. Thanks again, Vicki. Thank you, George. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight as we are all in this together.